0: So this last session on the world, the flesh, and the devil is, is going to be on the flesh. So we talked uh, two weeks ago about the devil as the cosmic enemy of Christianity, of, of the church. We talked about uh, the world last week as the enemy uh, at the communal level. Right, They're the community that is opposed to us. And lastly, at the last level... Is the most intimate, and of course it 's in some ways it 's uh the hardest because it 's so close to us. See this is the enemy at the individual level, and the enemy at the individual level is our flesh it 's our own flesh it 's the enemy within, and that makes it particularly hard and Every week i 've talked about kind of these opposing uh, entities or opposing realities. Uh, at the at each level, and so when we looked at the cosmic, we said, you know, there's there's God and the Devil, and these are two opposing beings um, who are at war. That's at the cosmic level, and then at the communal level, you have the Church and the world. They're two opposing realities, uh, two opposing communities that are at war, and then lastly, at this most individual level. God shows up again because the opposite of the flesh, this opposing entity that opposes our flesh is the spirit, the spirit of God. And so it's it's really beautiful that at the most grandiose, the most transcendent reality, we have God standing against the devil. And yet even here at the most intimate, most personal, most um, internal realities, the Lord is at work as the spirit opposes our very flesh. And so it's it's good to know that God is present at every level for us. Uh, at, at every level, the Lord is at work. And so when we talk about spirit and flesh, we have to ask, okay, well, to understand that, we have to ask, what is the flesh, right? But to really understand flesh, we, we have to have a, a kind of... Um, it's a tangent conversation, but it is one that I think is vital to understand flesh if we're going to understand this individual enemy, right? This le- this enemy at the level of the individual. And uh, the the tangent conversation we need to have is what is a human, right? If we're going to understand what a human's flesh is, we have to understand what a human is. And so we have to have a biblical background on what humans are. So the question that's that we have to ask is, um, how many parts do humans have? What makes up a person, right? What are they made up of? <clears throat> and one spot we can go to is Matthew twenty-two, Matthew twenty-two, verse thirty-seven to thirty-eight, right? Very, very important passage, right? It says this. You remember, a, a someone, a lawyer is asking Jesus. Uh, a question and the question is what's the great commandment in the law and Jesus's response of course is you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind so Jesus gives us three parts three parts you have your heart you have your soul you have your mind now, if you know uh, your Bible at all, and if you if you know what the notations they make, this is all in caps. And the reason it's all in caps is because it's a quote. And where is this quoted from? This is an Old Testament passage. is quoted. If you don't know, you should know. This is a very very important Old Testament text. It comes from Deuteronomy six. Deuteronomy six, known as the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, it's talking about all of uh, these words that are going to be on your heart, all the commandments that will be taught to you by the Lord. And it says this in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Not mind, but might. So Deuteronomy 6 actually has another part that we have to add okay you've got your heart your soul your mind from matthew 22 then you've got might here your strength right here in deuteronomy 6 verse 5 okay so there's four parts where else can we go most of the people in my circles i've heard of the tri the kind of tripartite division of human um what they're talking about is from a passage, usually most people don't even know where it's from, it's from 1 Thessalonians 5, the very end of the book, it says this, uh, this is Paul speaking in 5.23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord of our Lord Jesus. Okay, so now Paul gives three. He gives spirit, soul, body. So what are we up to now? We have seven. We have um, your mind, your might, your soul, your strength. I guess really six souls repeated. Uh, Spirit, soul, we already talked about, body, Uh, all these different elements, okay? Well, where else do we talk about the creation of people, what they are? Of course, we have to go to Genesis, Genesis 2 verse 7 talks about this. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So then we have dust from the ground being a part of us. We know that's a reference to body, but then we have this breath of life. I don't maybe that refers to spirit or soul. Uh, in In some people 's understanding of theology um, and and so maybe these are repeats, whatever the case, you have all these different pieces and they show up in different spots in the bible and And the question is how many parts do it, are there to a human? I think the best answer if we see all these different answers from different people is that humans are complex. Humans are complex beings that have all different kinds of ways to be divided, that we can think of ourselves, that we can understand what a human is. Uh, You know, we can think about emotion and we can think about uh, rationality and we can think about all these different aspects. We can think about different body parts that make us up. There's all these different ways because we are uh, wonderful creations. We are uh, glorious creations that the Lord himself made. And so I think there's a a whole a whole multifaceted view of humans and what what they are and who they are. I think fundamentally though, when the Bible talks about what makes a human, I actually think Genesis 2 is is a a paradigm for us. It really is a a good way to understand us in terms of parts. And like I said, it says dust from the ground and breath of life. What is dust from the ground and breath of life? Well, it's the material dust from the ground and the immaterial breath of life from the Lord. And I think that's the most fundamental understanding of what, how many parts a human has. And it's fundamentally a unity of two parts. And those two parts are material there's a material aspect to us and uh, immaterial there's a there's an ethereal part to us a part to us that is not encapsulated just in our body that is not just made up of our our chemicals and our brain and you know, there's something beyond that and I think we can all uh, if you're a Christian, I think you certainly understand that. Um, and here's the thing: the Lord did not me- did not mean for them to be divisible. They are divisible. We know they are because when you die, it says that you go to be with the Lord. Now, obviously, your body doesn't. Your body stays here. It can be buried or cremated or any number of things that can happen to your to your body. Um, but what's really important is that it's not meant to be divided. And that's something that often I think gets missed, is even though it's possible that it can be divided, the spirit goes to be with the Lord, the body's left, so we know it's possible. It's not meant to be. The Lord didn't make a mistake when he took dust from the ground and put the spirit into. We're not uh, platonic believers, right? The the, the works of Plato is where this idea of the spirit-body um, separation being a good thing came from, right? It, it unfortunately has led to that kind of escapist theology that says, man, uh, ultimately the goal of Christianity is to just get to heaven when you die, right? If you can just, you know, hold on as a Christian long enough, then your spirit gets to go be with Jesus, and that's the goal. It's not the goal actually the goal the goal of christianity is new creation that's where we're headed that's the point to which we want to get and what happens in new creation fundamentally if you think heaven when you die is the goal you miss out on what the importance of what jesus does is because what jesus did was be resurrected and the hope of the Christian, the actual hope in the New Testament, is bodily resurrection. Why is that important? Because God wanted us to be embodied. It was how he intended us to be. He didn't, like I said, he didn't make a mistake in Genesis by taking dust from the ground. If only he would have just like breathed this breath and it would have become some spirit. That would have been good, right? That's, that's Greek thinking. That's philosophical thinking. That's not biblical. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians have internalized that kind of Greek philosophical thought that if only we can get rid of this bad body, this this shell, then we will be good because we'll be spirits. And no, that's not true. That's not true biblically. Biblically, God intended for us to be a unity of body and and. Uh, Let me rephrase that. He he intended us to be a unity of material and immaterial. I want to be consistent in using those terms because we're going to see how these terms start to get kind of convoluted for us, how we start to misunderstand them. But he meant for us to be material and immaterial together in unity. That's how he created us in Genesis, how he created humanity. And that's what he intends for us in the future that when new creation comes we will bodily be resurrected united again spirit and body now it'll be different right it'll be we were plant as paul says we were planted perishable uh, and but when we when we sprout when we grow we will become we will have an imperishable body right that it no longer will be subject to death but it is still being embodied existence and that's important and it's important to recognize that that this life, as as hard as it is, as as much suffering can be inflicted in this life, um, the fact that we are finite, the fact that we have limits, the fact that we have these wonderful bodies that let us do what we can do, is a good thing. It's a godly thing. It's what He wanted for us, and so we should care for our bodies. We should. They should be important to us. They should matter. We shouldn't have a theology that tells us the physical is nothing and meaningless. Uh, And what's the ultimate sign of that? What is the the ultimate uh, acknowledgement of the sacredness and importance of the human body? It's that Jesus took on one. God himself was willing to put on human flesh. And that, to me, is the ultimate sign of that our bodies are worth something. Jesus is worth something. and He was willing to incarnate, to become flesh. And we should always hold on to that. We should hold on to that as a as a recognition of the importance of our physicality. Okay? So that's the first part. I, I just want to... We have to have that conversation. We have this material and immaterial part. And when you're talking about flesh, oftentimes people just assume what you mean is... Well this body it's the body part if I can just get rid of this body part the flesh then I'll be good and that's not what that's not Bible that's just our own philosophical interpretation that's not what the Bible is saying okay since we're going to have the conversation of spirit and flesh though uh, we we have to define some of these terms okay so then my next question what is what is according to the New Testament? What's the defining mark of a Christian? The Bible lays out a defining mark. This is the thing that marks people off as a Christian. Now, the way you become a Christian is to believe in Jesus. We know that's true. Uh, That's the way that you enter in, right? You repent and believe. That's the way you enter in to faith, uh, enter in that that faith is what in you enter into Christianity. How you become a Christian, but there's actually a defining mark on someone who is a Christian in the New Testament. What is that? Well, according to the New Testament, go to First Corinthians twelve, <clears throat> verse three. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the mark of a Christian. Without the Spirit, you are not a Christian. If you have the Spirit indwelling you, you are a Christian. That's what this verse says. If you are, if you are speaking by the Spirit of God, you cannot say Jesus is accursed. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, you cannot say Jesus is Lord. Right? The mark of a Christian. Let me give you a few other examples. Acts two. Acts two is a great example. Right? This speech that Peter gives—that's really. So impactful for our faith. Peter says this at the very end. He they ask what to do, right? And remember, they're so convicted by the speech that Peter gives, um, by this really almost sermon that Peter gives, um, they're ready, they're they're ready to to do whatever it takes to be saved. So they ask, what can we do? What are we supposed to do to be saved? Peter says to them in verse 38, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That mark that makes them a Christian, that shows their believers, is them receiving the gift. They have to repent and believe, and that this believing part is connected to baptism, which of course it should be. We don't do a good job of that. I don't need to get into that uh, discussion right now, but we don't do a good job of that nowadays. But repent and and believe, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Once they do the things to become a Christian, they're going to get the Holy Spirit because it's the mark of a Christian. Okay, 1 John 4. Another good passage for this. Right? By this you know, this is verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That's the spirit of the Antichrist, right? The spirit of God confesses that Jesus has come. That's the belief, right? If, if someone confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's the spirit of God speaking. Now, this is talking, obviously, about um, testing the spirits, right? Testing the spirits to see whether they are godly or demonic, um, but the point holds, which is that the confession, which is that belief part, is tied to the spirit of god right this this is the mark of a Christian okay so now we 've defined these two things, spirit and flesh, and I wanted to define both because what we 're about to talk to uh, what we 're about to talk about really involves both right but what 's important to know is that the way we use a word in modern English usage doesn't necessarily represent the biblical usage of that word, right? We we can take words that we know and use in English and load with all of our baggage or all of our beliefs about that word, and that doesn't have anything to do per se with what the Bible means by that word. So when I have been talking about the spirit and the flesh dichotomy, these two opposing realities here, these two opposing entities, our own flesh and the spirit of God, I don't mean a war between the material and the immaterial parts of a person. It doesn't mean flesh, this is the material, that's the bad part, and spirit, the immaterial, that's the good part, and those two things are at war. That's not what I mean at all. The word flesh in this dichotomy is used to speak of that sinful-natured, residual part of that person you were prior to salvation which is just as much involved in the immaterial part of you as it is your body and of course in many ways much more so even though your body is what uh, allows you to act out your sinfulness as we all know the sinfulness starts somewhere else it doesn't start in the body it starts in your heart in your desires in your mind it starts at these levels well before it gets acted out according to your body. And that's important to remember. So like I said, this is not a material-immaterial war. This is flesh, that sinful-natured part of you that you were prior to salvation, that remains. And the spirit part of the dichotomy is not your spirit. It's referring to the spirit of God. And this is the way that spirit and spiritual are used primarily in the scriptures, right? Spiritual does not mean think better thoughts or do better in the immaterial part of yourself. Spiritual means things of or things related to the spirit of God, right? So when, when we were looking at 1 Corinthians 12, when we talk about uh, spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, Spiritual gifts are not like, oh yeah, those gifts that you've been implanted in your spirit. Those gifts that the the Lord has given you in your spirit. That's not what it's saying. It's not about your spirit. It's spiritual. They're gifts related to the spirit of God. They're from the spirit of God. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the spirit. And that's important. And interestingly enough, of course, in that passage, many people don't know this, but gifts is actually not there. The word gifts is not there in 1 Corinthians 12.1. It's just spiritual. It's spirituals, right? Now concerning spirituals, things of the Spirit of God, and of course this is convoluted because um, one of the things we have to deal with in the scriptures uh, is using spirit, both capitalized and uncapitalized, right? So that's that's one thing that makes it hard because it signals to people that we're talking about the Spirit of God when it's capitalized. And when it's not, we assume it's not talking about the Spirit of God. And that's why I think almost across the board, the word spiritual in the scripture should be capitalized because when it says spiritual, it's not referring to just like immaterial gifts. It's referring to things related to the Spirit when the word spiritual is used. 1 Corinthians 12 is a great example because it's not capitalized there. In 1 Corinthians 12, 1, you might just think, oh, these are gifts that I have that are, you know, like my mind, my ability to use my mind to teach or something. No, no, no. It's that these are things from the Spirit of God. Right? That's what spiritual is referring to. They're spirit things. So, from there, what are the tactics of the flesh? What are the tactics of the flesh? Okay. Let's go to Romans 7. I'm going to give you my interpretation of Romans 7. Um, it was fun to do when I did it with uh, with my church. I was glad to be able to do it. Um, it. It adds some length to the time because I have to go through explaining this passage. I hope you'll bear with me, um, but I think it gives us some good conclusions. Now, I want you to know up front, Romans 7 is a highly debated passage, uh, even amongst, you know, evangelical Christians. There are evangelical Christians in the same traditions who totally disagree about this passage. And, of course, here's the main question. Romans 7, Paul gives this kind of uh, speech about what how hard it is to have these kind of two natures at war. And the question always has been, whether he's talking as a Christian, we know, we know Paul's a Christian, but is he speaking as a Christian, or is he speaking as um, kind of acting like this is what my life was like before Christ, right? Like he's, he's, he's not talking about that this is still what my life is like, he's talking about this is what life was like prior to being a Christian. This is what life was like when I wasn't a Christian, when I was just a faithful Jew. This is life. Or is he talking about, no, this is what goes on in my Christian experience. <clears throat> so, I'll read it to you. Okay. For what, uh, excuse me, this is verse 14. So, if you, in Romans 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, That is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man What do you think? After having listened to that, what do you think? Do you think this is Paul speaking as a Christian? Or do you think this is Paul speaking uh, about what life was like as a faithful Jew prior prior to his his salvation? It's a tough question. I think there are parts in the passage that kind of lead or lend itself towards both interpretations, which is what makes it hard. I'll give you my interpretation and again this is just my interpretation you don't have to agree with it and many many uh great wise smart believers uh would disagree with this but I'll tell you why I think I think this is Paul speaking about uh the reality of being a faithful Jew prior to his salvation and here's why One the way he speaks Um, he says some things that I just find very hard for him to to say if he's talking about being a Christian, saying sin dwells in me. Uh, That's language of the Spirit, right? The Spirit indwelling you when you're a Christian. The sin dwelling in me is not, I don't think, other than this passage, is used in that way. Once you're a Christian, right? I just don't see that. Right and, the, and ultimately, the point is, who's going to set him free from the body of this death? It's Jesus. Jesus is going to set him free from the body of this death. And what all of this uh, good that he wants to do, part of what gets convoluted is, I think, that, that we don't understand what his, he's saying as a faithful Jew. For, for Gentiles, for pagans, we say, well well, they wouldn't know good that they'd want to do. Paul's a faithful Jew, though. I think what he's saying is, I want to do good. I can, I joyfully concur with the law. I just don't have the power within me to do it. I don't have the ability to do it. Right? He, it, I want to do it. I know the Lord. I, I love him. I'm a faithful Jew. I, I just can't do it. I, I can't. I cannot actuate in my body the living out of that law. And that's exactly why, if you follow the the logic of the passage, what does Paul go to in chapter 8? Where does he go immediately? Immediately where he goes is to what the Spirit does in the life of the Christian. That's another reason I think that this passage is about him prior to faith. He doesn't talk about spiritual, about spirit, the spirit of God in this section at all. It's solely his mind and his flesh. I want to do what's good in my mind, but I can't in my flesh. If you go back earlier in Romans 7, it says this. This is where he starts. We didn't read this, but earlier than when we read at the beginning of Romans 7 says, but now we, this is when he's talking about. Being a Christian. Now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that now we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Right? Now we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. And then what he goes on to do in the rest of seven is talk about what it's like living in the oldness of the letter what it's like living under the law he wants to do the law but he can't he is not power he is not empowered to do it he's not empowered under the oldness of the letter to do the things his mind wants to do which is good and even though the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good he doesn't have the power to do the law. That's what he's saying. That's the point of chapter 7. It's the oldness of the letter. So that when we get to 8, he talks about the newness of the Spirit and what that is like. Like I told you in chapter 7 after verse 6, he has nothing to say about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is not mentioned for the rest of chapter 7. And as soon as you get to chapter 8, immediately it turns to talking about what the Spirit of life is doing in the life of the Christian. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus set you free from the law of sin of sin and of death. And it, like I told you earlier, the, the defining mark of a Christian in in the scriptures, in the New Testament, the defining mark of the Christian is the Spirit. And as soon as Paul turns from chapter seven to chapter eight, remember, in chapter seven he has said nothing about the Spirit except that we're, we no longer serve in the in the oldness of the letter, but now in the newness of the Spirit is how we serve. As soon as he turns to chapter eight, the word Spirit relating to the Spirit of God, shows up 20-something times in the chapter. He doesn't mention it once, except in in verse 6, to talk about serving in the newness of the Spirit rather than the oldness of the letter. And then tells us what it's like serving in the oldness of the letter. And then chapter 8 hits, and immediately the Spirit shows up 20-some times. That's what leads me to think, well, if the Spirit is the defining mark of Christianity, that's why he doesn't mention the Spirit in chapter 7. He's talking about this is what it was like when I had no ability to do what God wanted me to do. And thanks be to Jesus. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord that he sent me free from that and gave me of his Spirit. And then chapter 8 tells us what the Spirit has done, what the Spirit of God has done for us. So that's how I'd understand it. I think a big reason... Why this is so controversial though, and I think this is wrong, um, is that this this passage in Romans seven is almost treated like it it hinges on this one passage alone whether we can struggle as Christians. People read this and they think about their Christian experience. Yeah, I I, I agree I'm a good Christian and it's hard to do what my mind wants me to do. It's hard to do the good that I want. My body still sins. So it sounds like my experience. And to that, I would say, I, I'm fine with that. I, I agree with that. I just don't think that's the right interpretation of the passage. The passage is explicitly, in my opinion, it's Paul talking about what it's like to ha- to not have the Spirit. That's the point he's making, which is why he talks about in chapter 8, what life is like with the Spirit, how different it is. And it is. It is different. It's unbelievably different. But when we read this passage, we're like, this is the one passage that we have to cling to to show that it's still a struggle. And I think that's one of the problems of downplaying our experience. I think everyone recognizes that when you are a Christian, you still struggle with sin, right? You still struggle with sin. You still struggle with the flesh, this residual part that is a struggle in you. But I don't think this is the only passage we can go to to point to that reality. And when this passage is treated like it's the only place we can go to in the scriptures to talk about still struggling with sin, I think that's why it feels imperative to defend this as this is Paul the Christian speaking. Because we have to have a scriptural example example where we can say, we go here and look, look, the Christian life is a struggle. And I don't think that's his point. I think Paul's point is to talk about the unbelievably radical difference between not having the Spirit of God in chapter 7, even though he's faithful to the Lord. He's faithful to the And he's a Jew who has spent his whole life knowing and loving the God of his people. And even then, it wasn't enough because he lived under the law and did not have the Spirit. But then he says, in a complete radical difference, when Christ gave of his Spirit, when he poured out his Spirit, this is what the Spirit did in me. This is what it he does in you. This is what the Spirit is at work doing in the life of the Christian, and that's important. That's vital, right? And and maybe it's just my own experience. Maybe this is yours. Maybe not. But I think sometimes, as someone who I I literally don't remember a time when I wasn't a Christian. You know, I've grown up a Christian since I was a little kid. I don't even remember not being a Christian. I think sometimes that we, we don't, those of us in that situation don't know the actual power of the Spirit of God and the change that that makes in a life. I think people who have dramatic uh, conversion ex- experiences or ex- conversion stories, or if maybe they've you know lived a season, maybe lived a long while of life without the Spirit, I think it's it's easier for them to see uh, how big a difference having the Spirit of God makes. So for if you, if you think about uh, that, I think that's the point Paul's trying to make. There's an unbelievable difference. And Paul's saying, guess what? I was a good person. I was a good man. I was a faithful Jew. I wanted to do what the Lord wanted me to do, but I couldn't do it. And then the Spirit was given to me. I believed in Jesus, the Spirit was given to me, and here is what the Spirit did, right? The law, what it could not do, God did, sending his own Son. As an offering for sin, he condemns sin, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then he goes on to say, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The f- mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, Christian, you're not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Right? Again, it's the mark, the mark of a Christian. And that's the point. That's the point of this passage, okay? So, I know I had said earlier, what are the tactics of the flesh? Well, I think one of the tactics uh, of the flesh, and and that means what does the flesh do that, that is against us, what does it operate like? Well, one thing is without the Spirit, we're completely powerless, completely powerless to fight. Against the flesh, right? And of course, that's a reality for non-Christians. For those of us who have the Spirit, uh, one of the things that the Spirit wants us, uh, excuse me, one of the things that the flesh uh, does is it it continues to, to put this battle on in us, this desire for evil, this desire for temptation. And like I said, I don't think that's the correct interpretation of this passage, but I don't think it's the only spot in Scripture we see this. And we do, and, and even, like I said, you can read this passage and it reflects your own experience that we have this desire to do good and, and sometimes uh, we, we don't. But unfortunately, I think one of the realities is we're too hard on ourselves as Christians. I think, this is not true for everyone, but many times I think Christians have kind of adopted a theology that says they are worthless and meaningless and they're all they're ever going to do is sin and all they're ever going to do is fail. And I think that actually leads us into more sin. I think it leads us towards towards deeper and darker sin. And we'll talk more about that in a little in a little bit. Okay, Galatians 5. Here's some examples of tactics of the flesh. Go to Galatians 5 verse 16. This is quite a list, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Right, the things that you please being the things your flesh pleases. If you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That is a list of of deeply evil things that we can all be uh, guilty of. Right, That is a huge list. The tactics of the flesh are, are giving in to all those things at an individual level that we talked about with the world, really. Right, All these things, but they're coming up from inside. They're coming up from inside us. They're not a temptation that's external to us from the world. They're enticing us to do something. It's this internal reality that desires to do those evil things. Okay, Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. That word, uh, they, they translate it here in the NASB, which is what I'm reading as self. It actually says man. The word is Anthropos. Man. Since you have laid aside the old man and have put on the new man. That fundamentally is the distinction we're talking about. This old man... Old man with its evil practices. That old man, that's the flesh. This is another way to talk about that spirit-flesh divide here in Colossians 3. It's a different terminology, but it's the same reality. Lay aside. you, But listen, you have laid aside. That's what's important. You aren't that old man anymore. He doesn't say, now it's time for you to lay aside. He says, since you did, since you have laid aside the old man and have put on the new man, don't do these things anymore. Put all these things aside. See, the old man fundamentally, fundamentally the definition of that old man, that definition of flesh is gone from you. Because you put off, you laid aside the old man and you put on the new man, the spirit man. You've put aside the flesh man and put on the spirit man. But what is residual, what is habituated, right? The the habits and the reality of that old man, at the core of who you are, you're not that old man. You've already laid it aside. But the habits and the practices and all those things that are still there residually that you have acclimated to, that you have become, that has become normal for you, those practices, they can still reside. And so Paul encourages you, put those things aside. Put aside anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech. Put it. Don't lie anymore. Put it all aside, because you already put aside the old man. So put aside all the behaviors that act and look like him. And you've already put on the new man to act and look like him, right? Verse 12, he says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Paul says, this is the way the new man looks. This is the way the old man looks. If you're a Christian, you've already gotten rid of the old man. You already are the new man. But you need to put on the behaviors and the, habit- and the habits and the attitudes of the new man and not align yourself with the old man you've already laid aside. But fundamentally, at the most base, we have to remember that the old man is gone. That's the identity piece. Okay, before I continue on that point... So I just listed a a whole host of things. All these evil behaviors that spring up from within us, they're all different tactics. The flesh has an innumerable amount of tactics. The question becomes, what are the responses of the Christian to the flesh? What are the responses of the Christian to the flesh? How do we respond as a Christian when the flesh tries to rear its head? These old habits, these residual patterns... Uh, how do we respond to it okay i have three points and the first is this and this is back to the point i was just making before i, I mentioned this question any uh, uh, here's a good passage to go to you can go to any of paul's letter openings every single one of them opens this way okay any letter that paul writes he says this to the saints the saints the word for saints in greek is sorry the word for saints in greek is the word holy it just means it's literally just hagias. it's hagias, the adjective holy just as as a noun it's the word holy as a noun You set apart ones, you ones who have been set apart by God to be morally pure and holy and good. You're saints. What's one of the responses of the Christian to the flesh? At the most basic level, any of Paul's letter openings tell us that if you're a Christian, you're a saint. You're a holy one. And one of our responses to the flesh has to be, you have to believe who you are. If you're a Christian, you have to believe who you are. It doesn't matter what church Paul's writing to. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter what's happening. Paul refers to them as saints. Saints. Why? Because he knows we're holy. He knows we're holy. In 1 Corinthians, I mean, how many issues do these people have in this church? They've got a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. They've got all their... They're dying because they're not letting poor people take communion uh, in an appropriate way. They're stuffing themselves at the Lord's table. And then letting the poor go hungry. And so God's judging them and they're dying. I mean, they've got all these problems, all these questions. They're, they're Gentiles. They don't get it. They, they don't even know the Lord probably that well, right? Because they, they haven't had the background and the understanding that, you know, a good Jewish congregation would have. And Paul calls them saints, That they're holy ones. Why? Because they've laid aside the old man and put on the new man. They laid aside their flesh and have been filled with the Spirit. You have to believe that. If your response to the flesh rearing its head is, I am evil. I am awful. I'm never going to succeed. I'm never going to be better. I'm never going to be a good Christian. I guess this is just my lot in life. I'm a worm. I'm nothing. I'm worthless. Just thanks be to God he saved me. And there, you know, I'm just so grateful he saved me because I'm such a piece of trash. That response leads to death. That response leads to sin only way you will conquer it is to believe who you are. Believe that you really are a saint, that you really are a holy one, one who is set aside, set apart for the work of God. And like Paul said in in Colossians, Colossians 3, you already did it. You already, if you're a Christian, you've already set aside the old man. And you've become the new man. You, you just need to make your life look like the new man you are. That's the first response. You have to believe. Identity is key. Identity is key. You have to know. You have to believe that you are the person. That you're not just that flesh. You're not just the old man. That you have become the new man. Okay, the second response is this, Romans 12, Romans 12, therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Oh, I've got to mention this while I'm here. What's your spiritual service of worship? What's the the God ordained service of worship that you can do? It's to present your body as a sacrifice. Again, the body is important. <laughs> this, this is great. I wasn't even going to talk about this, but that's important. The spiritual service of worship, the rational act of worship towards God is what? It's to present your body as a sacrifice. So that your body lives out the faith that you have. That's just a side note. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be just like the world, which is full of people in their flesh, all living together, living out their fleshly reality. Don't be like them, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can understand, you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect you have to renew your mind and that's one of the reasons reading scripture is so important reading scripture is a process by which you disentangle yourself from the world to have your mind renewed thinking about the things of God thinking about things that are noble and holy and pure and good right that's the renewing your mind giving the flesh the flesh space to think and control your thoughts and your mind, that's where the flesh wins its victories. It's because you allow the evil to saturate in your mind and in your heart. And that's when your body will act out those things. As it, as it just permeates you when, you when you obsess and think and, and um, dwell on those things. You have to have your mind renewed. You have to have your mind renewed to think the thoughts of God. And one of the best ways to do that, of course, is to read your Bible so that you can know what he's like, know how he thinks, that you can know what God finds good, acceptable, and perfect, according to this verse. That's the second. So believe who you are, renew your mind. And interestingly, the last one, And this is interesting because it's different. Like I told you, the the responses are different. The responses are different based on where these things are coming from, right? If, If it's the devil, you're supposed to oppose. You're supposed to resist. You're supposed to fight against him. If it's coming from the world, we talked about evaluating. You're supposed to evaluate. You're supposed to weigh whether this is worth eternity or not. The flesh, though, the flesh, though, is the only time. It is the only time in which the scriptures tell us you might have to flee. You might have to flee. There are some things that come up within you that are so hot, too hot to handle, too too much to be, um, too much to deal with for a person. That they, they should flee. That they should flee. Right? Here's what it says. This is verse 18 of, of 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, it says this. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Now what does immorality here? Immorality here, the word uh, is is actually talking about sexual immorality. Actually, the word is pornéa, right? That's the word where we get pornography from, Pornéa. It's sexual immorality, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the I- immoral man, right, sins against his own body. The sexually impure man sins against his own body. And interestingly, who's the poster child you think of in this situation, right? Well, for me, the, the absolute poster child for flee sexual immorality is Joseph, right? He actually has that situation come up. He's, you know, he's a slave at this point in the house of Potiphar. And Potiphar, uh, his wife is is attracted to Joseph and wants him to sleep with her. And he literally, literally leaves his clothes in her hand. She grips at his clothes and, and his, clothes, his his garment comes off and he just flees. He doesn't, like, I need my clothes to go outside. He just runs, right? And that's the whole plot against him, is that she lies and, and says that he tried to rape her, uh, which obviously was not true. But what's interesting is that Joseph knew. Joseph, who is a cons- a, a consummate, good, holy, righteous person before God. There's he, He's a good man. He knows that the, the temptation is too great. He flees it. He flees it, right? And I, I think that's true, not just about this one issue. I think it's true for a lot of different issues for different people. There are times when we know ourselves, and you should, if you don't know yourself well enough to know what those sins are, uh, you need to do some self-examination. Because I think we all should know each other, uh, know ourselves well enough to know where those spots are. And there are times when something's too big uh, that we need to flee it. You know, and we have to be willing to do what is necessary to deal with that, right Sometimes it's pull the plug, sometimes it's get rid of the phone, uh, but you can do it. you can do it, and we have to be about doing it and helping each other, helping each other uh, flee from those temptations and do what's what's helpful to to take care of them. but this is a specific example of of this sin of sexual immorality that the Bible tells us to to flee it. It tells us to flee. We're never told to flee the demonic. We're never told to flee from the world. We're told to flee from this immorality that comes up within us, this fleshly reality. We can have internally these sins that come up from within us. We have to flee them from time to time. Now, there are other sins I don't think we're called to flee. I think we're called to conquer them. Um... But there are some times, like I said, we should know we know ourselves, I keep saying each other, we should know ourselves well enough to know when we need to flee. So that's what I would say in terms of the response to the flesh. At the most core level, you've got to know who you are and believe who you are. You've got to have your sense of your identity. Secondly, you need to renew your mind so that the things that are in, in you, the things that are in your heart and in your mind are godly. So that they don't lead towards death. And lastly, there are times, like I said, we need to flee. We need to flee from the fleshly desires. Flee from temptations. So that we don't give in. And that's it for the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, I hope that you've learned something over these last three weeks. I hope that it's been beneficial to you. But more than anything, if you are a Christian listening to this, my prayer is you'd know who you are. Believe who you are. You're not a worm. You're not worthless. You're not just an abject sinner who will never be any different. No, you're a saint. You're God's chosen one. And the Spirit of God who dwells in you allows him to call. Allows you to call God Father. Right? That's what Roman eight Romans eight teaches us. Right? It is the Spirit of God within us that allows us to call out Abba Father. Believe who you are today, Christian.